This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Today we've got a great program for you and another live show. We're going to be talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it is impacted by our media environment and especially in regards to vaccine reluctance. And so the guest I brought on today with me is Richard Carpiano. He is a public health sociologist, studies basically how the public thinks about medical information and how how it works in in relation to the media. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Real quickly, how did you become interested in public health? And you have a, a medical background as well in as sociology. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I've, I guess I've always been split brain in a sense that I've always been very interested in, uh, in medical science and, uh, and, and public health issues going back to even my undergraduate days, as well as just really having a keen interest also in the social sciences. So, you know, that's really launched my career in a sense. Uh, even my, my, my PhD is actually a a joint hybrid of, of public health and and, and sociology, uh, and really most of the work that I've focused on throughout my career has focused very much on how social and behavioral factors influence um, any range of of, uh, of health issues. Uh, but most recently, say a couple of years ago, really the the Disneyland measles outbreak, um, it really was something that caught my attention. Really fascinated me in terms of of a really important issue. Uh, that really intersected between social science and and uh, what we might think of as just viruses, you know, and thinking of something as sort of really sort of basic sort of natural science. Uh, and really, you know, ever since then, that sort of launched my concern with uh, issues around hesitancy, public understanding of uh, issues related to infectious disease and vaccines. But, you know, it, but during COVID, it's really sort of expanded much more into really, you know, into, into so many bigger issues that you know, I'm sure we're going to get into today uh, in relation to really how the public kind of understands science, how science gets communicated, and what impacts that has for helping or, in, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, hindering public policy uh, related to pandemic response or, or just even epidemic response for things that we're going to see now and we'll see in the future. Yeah, exactly. We're going to organize the discussion here today into several different uh, sections just to keep it easier to digest for everybody. So we're focusing on COVID misinformation here, and uh, we're looking at the different sources of it because it's important to note here that this is not a new phenomenon, skepticism about vaccinations and misinformation about vaccines. Uh, This is not a new thing. Um, So we're going to look at some of the sources of those, and uh, they are, uh, for the purposes of this discussion, um, typical conspiracy theorists who can have ideas about other subjects, non-qualified actual medical doctors who are speaking outside of their field, uh, and business types, that is, uh, people who are concerned more with economic repercussions of, 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 of the pandemic, and then also wannabe pundits um, or media figures. Um, so that's the framework that we're going to look into. Let's uh, maybe, so let's focus first, Rich, if you don't mind, on the uh, typical conspiracists. Um, the conspiracy theories, they're endemic to human nature, are they not? Completely. And COVID is just the latest iteration of them. Uh, and mm-hmm. well, and, and you know, in a sense, uh, it's been sort of been very much a perfect storm, given our political climate and uh, political events that have occurred in the past few years, too. And so uh, we've seen a very concerning. Um, well, I'll, I'll back it up just a little bit. So as somebody who studies uh, the anti-vaccine movement, there's been there was always lots of conspiracy theorizing around big what. You know, the arguments about big pharma and big medicine, in a sense, and having different sorts of schemes in order to be to profit, you know, having having uh, conflicts of interest, and you know, really, as COVID came about, uh, you know, really sort of the anti-vaccine movement and and that kind of thinking converge a lot more with other uh, types of fringe and extremist groups that had their own conspiracies related to government and other sorts of. Uh, again, theorized bad faith actors and what exactly their motivations would be in a conspiracy theory sort of sense. And so even the even in the days before and in the in the day of um, the um, insurrection at the Capitol, January 6th, 
you know, we saw events that had this convergence or this sort of collective of grievance issues with uh, with people with with spheres, I guess you could say, of interests and issues that had their own uh, specific sorts of conspiracy theories tied into them. So things like we would see a convergence of people who generally had a background in the anti-vaccine movement also showing up with people that were very much of sort of the stop to steal, uh, other sorts of anti-government uh, types of uh, li- libertarian, extreme libertarian type groups as well. The Roger, uh, Roger Stone, even even at the same of appearing at the same events as, as these individuals, and even people with backgrounds and other sort of medical, you could say sort of denialism or medical truth, trutherism uh, in relation to science and, and whatnot. And so, I mean, that might seem a little afield from conspiracy theory, but at the heart of all of these groups is uh, there there is a significant buy-in to particular types of conspiracies. And you see that kind of consp- conspiratorial thinking uh, in the online chatter. Can you talk a little bit about the some of the prior vaccine movement uh, conspiracies and some of the people involved with that uh, before COVID? Because they're still around, of course, but they were talking about other stuff in addition. Yeah, you know, it, it seems... In some ways, when I, I th- when we think about sort of maybe even just like so anti-vaccine activism and beliefs are are, are nothing new, and they've been they're as old as vaccines themselves. But when we think about sort of like the modern uh, the modern version of this, even if we want to go back about twenty years or so, even though it, you know, d- it dates uh, even some of the current things that we're seeing date date even before that and back into the nineties. You know, we can think it, it starts it becomes very difficult sometimes to draw a line between like where exactly does the misinformation sort of suddenly become the the conspiracy thinking uh, um, sort of beliefs you know and sort of the, there's there's a blending there at, at certain points you know many people are, might be very familiar with the Andrew Wakefield controversy over his uh, his research in regards to making the claims that the MMR vaccine uh, was related to autism and then how that got amped through celebrities like Jenny McCarthy I mean, Jenny McCarthy takes a lot of heat for this, but in many respects, it's Oprah Winfrey who really kind of gave a lot of the platform to that and a lot of medical misinformation through her through her program, uh, through the Dr. Oz's and, uh, and you know, Dr. Phil's and uh, Christian Northrup is another MD uh, who she gave a lot of attention to. And so really gave um, a lot of fuel to a lot of medical misinformation. But related to vaccines, uh, you know, over time we saw, uh, we've seen the rise of, mu- of a much more sort of organized, ac- much more organized activity uh, in relation to different, or- uh, different organizations, for example, like Children's Health Defense, uh, which is headed up by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, someone who had prior to this, had a fairly legitimate uh, sort of reputation within the environmental activism sort of world and kind of really moved into this, um, I mean, we can just say it, sort of really jumped the shark into this sort of pseudoscience of, of uh, vaccine activism. And uh, other other individuals as well, Del Bigtree uh, would be another one who has partnered up with uh, Andrew Wakefield after he was, long after he was dis- his paper was discredited. Uh, he, Big Tree has a background in television, had been a producer for Dr. Oz and the Doctors, if I recall correctly, uh, and had just completely moved into this where he, he became essentially um, him, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Wakefield, as well as as well as a few others, uh, have, have become basically celebrities within the, the national anti-vaccine activism sort of movement and have taken mm-hmm. on much more sort of strategic organized efforts, uh, as well as courted funding, and, uh, you know, really propagated a lot of mistruths uh, that really do feed into, I think you could say more sort of latent uh, types of beliefs that and, and, and fears that people might have around government and unregulated, the unre- unregulation of the, of the medical field to, what, to whatever degree that might be accurate uh, for, for uh, say, pharmaceuticals and things of that nature. But nevertheless, that's what features into those, those, uh, that, type of, that type of thinking. But overall, I mean, so while there was a lot of uh, bunk science that was getting pushed and getting argued, and a lot of, uh, you could say, uh, the, these beliefs started to become sort of common knowledge and filtering in through to the general public, and so became misinformation that then got circulated amongst people who were just legitimately asking questions or had concerns while seeing these. Things. I mean, you're, you're seeing these things on media. Celebrities are saying them. Uh, you know, your parent. It's completely understandable why people might have questions, and then they go online and they and they find these things. You know, and, and risks and mm-hmm. fears uh, that 
they tap into, especially in our in, in North American culture, where you know children are really often very viewed as sort of you know this project. You know, it's a very intensive project for parents to be to be undertaking in, in a sense. But uh, so where I was going with that was just to say that, you know, over time, though, we've seen this move much more into more political uh, rhetoric, uh, particularly as government has tried to respond to declining vaccination rates uh, in particular states, for example, and trying to prevent. uh, We've seen a few outbreaks that have occurred over the past few years uh, of measles that we that uh, didn't need to happen. Uh, and so in response to that, we've seen now this organization kind of moving more towards state houses where the debates are less about the science and much more about values. And they become much, much harder to uh, to try to refute, to argue. And uh, and they certainly uh, feed much more into this kind of conspiratorial thinking about government wanting to do bad things and, you know, and, and you know, all the other sorts of, of, of visualizations and, and visceral kinds of language that get used about uh, you know, harm towards children and, 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 and whatnot that gets, that gets brought up by mm-hmm. these individuals, state level organizations and others who are just, you could say, sort of maybe sympathetic uh, or, or fellow travelers. Yeah. Well, and as the, the the political component, as you um, noted earlier, it, it has become you know particularly popular for a long time um, you know, among more libertarian, extreme libertarian types who regard you know like there was in the and people kind of don't remember this now, but in the nineteen fifties and sixties there was a big you know controversy among far right types about fluoride in public utility water because they which still exists that debate and it still exists (laughs) that's right yeah people still believe this stuff and you know and and basically they came to the conclusion that the government does not have the authority to protect public health even though if you look at history you know even in the united states um you know or even the ancient world like that has been something that governments have done as a as a as a responsibility throughout history so and 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 it's kind of converged that you had this this movement of people that were you know they may not have necessarily had political ideas attached to it and they were politically heterodox. I mean, you know, Jenny McCarthy and uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. certainly are not Republicans uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but they had built a framework for questioning medical science and it was sort of basically bolted on, uh, would you say? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of these uh a lot of these arguments, I, th- I think how you're how you're, you're framing them, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, public health has been a core government function, um, even from a libertarian standpoint. I mean, one could even take the or make the argument that you know, in terms of providing like basic government, in terms of safety, you know, that public health very much fits into that kind of, that that type of of, of thinking about government uh, in that respect. But I, I think. To the, we just do not understand in, 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 in our country. Well, the way I, I like to think about it is and how we come to, cons- to, to think about public health, especially lately about public health as maybe being intrusive or overstepping is that so much of what public health does is, is collective or population sort of focused and community sort of focused, which is very different uh, in terms of how Americans think about their health, particularly over the, you know, in the, in the past uh, several decades, you know, really uh, in the past century is we've, we often think about, you know, major killers, uh, you know, things that we're going to die, you know, as things that are related to ourselves and our bodies. And we see this now in this dialogue around about health liberty and about the choice to be vaccinated or not. We see with the current COVID vaccine debates too, or whether or not to wear a mask. So we think about health and it's terms about of yourself. Yeah, it's about yourself. Yeah. Not and we about don't others. really think, yeah, about how uh, behaviors that we might have, you know, do have an impact on other people. Uh, and, you know, we've been very privileged to not have to experience, uh, you know, in a very long time, a major uh, infectious disease outbreak. And so uh, to try to get around that type of thinking uh, is, is very tricky, uh, particularly when individualism is really so ingrained in kind of the cultural DNA of, of, our, of our nation, that libertarian sort of ethos. Um, we, and we all have it to a certain degree. But, uh, you know, it's, again, for lots of people that really just see this as it's all about me, uh, they seem to be missing the, the other core part of what is our social contract, even if you're going to be a, you know, your full card carrying libertarian, which is, you know, you're, 
can do things that you want, provided they don't harm other people. And so really with public health, I mean, so much of the ethics around public health are very much about the needs of the many really outweigh the needs of, of the individual. There's, there's a tr an attempt to uh, try to balance those needs, of course. Uh, but as public health efforts you know, really focus on populations and public health law backs it up, you know, really, again, the, the community takes takes precedence, which is a very different thing than the usual bioethical discussions we might see on the news. Say somebody is, uh, say, on life support, whether, you know, don't, uh, you know, whether we should stop life support for the person. We see those controversies. Every abortion. Abortion. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, and and I think it's it's worth pointing out here that what's called American conservatism currently, uh, it wasn't originally called conservatism. It was actually called individualism. When you look at the early literature of William F. Buckley and some of his predecessors, that's what they called what they were doing. They didn't call it conservatism. Going back to our uh, framework here, so the typical conspiracists have have been joined in some cases by actual doctors, uh, medical doctors who have you know fully credentialed degrees, but they're not in a relevant area. And, and can you talk a little bit about some of the of the doctors that we're talking about? And, and it kind of fits in, I think, is an outgrowth of, of some of what you were talking about with uh, this idea of, you know, alternative medicine or, you know, uh, strange treatments that you hear about on Oprah Winfrey or in your spam folder. Uh, uh, talk about talk about that phenomenon a little bit, if you could. Certainly. Now, you know, there's certainly individuals that have a sort of a long history of, of sort of questionable sorts of practices. I mean, you know, I, I would think that Dr. Oz is probably maybe one of the first ones that, that would come to mind as sort of being one of these, uh, you know, chasing celebrity and maybe chasing the spotlight, arguably, uh, versus, uh, you know, really trying to keep to, uh, you know, and, uh, some sort of professional uh, sort of standards around uh, around what he trained in and what he's what he's practiced, uh, you know, all, all these years. But, you know, COVID has certainly brought out uh, a number of other individuals with, in this case, who are, you know, again, like, you know, Oz, Oz is a uh, is a cardiac is a cardiac surgeon, uh, you know, has, a, has had a very established sort of career with that. And we see very we see similar types like that now during COVID who have really kind of uh, sought the spotlight, sought particular types of influence and you know, either going on cable news or in certain cases, you know, seeking more policy influence. So the people that come to mind, you know, most immediately uh, to me, at least we're going to do word association with it is Scott Atlas uh, sort of really being uh, the, uh, the COVID whisperer, I guess you could say. And who, and who is Scott Atlas? Okay, so Scott Atlas. Yes. Right. For those who don't know is a, uh, was a, a Stanford uh, affiliated MD who uh, then moved over in his career. He was a, you know, a very respect, respected, um, I believe he was a radiologist by training, uh, wrote some uh, medical education textbooks around it, you know, sort of, you know, totally real deal. Moved to then the Hoover Institution, uh, at, which is also at Stanford University, but is, a, is well known as a, as a conservative think tank. Uh, very partisan in that regard, and moved sort of, I guess, was trying to pursue a second career in, in essence or second act in, in relation to health policy. If you go to look up his work, it does, didn't necessarily have m that much of an impact, uh, at least in. Well, he was trying to get a career. second career, but not any uh, actual, without doing any academic work. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and for, as far as I know, has no has no back background in in policy or. or, or to move into okay. the realm. Yeah. And then, you know, suddenly out of the blue, he became, uh, in a sense, a, a household name uh, to many through uh, through press, through Trump press conferences, where really he became, in, a, in essence, the uh, the counterpoint for to to Anthony Fauci, who was an actual it was the actual real deal expert. And, uh, you know, one, you know, a very well-respected, one of, one of the most well-respected, you could say, in, in, in the world, uh, infectious disease specialists. And so, uh, you know, in, in, in that case, providing guidance, providing uh, thoughts uh, to the president after being briefed by a range of experts, uh, you know, of public health experts, uh, or at least or it has how it might have been communicated to him by, say, Mike Pence, who was who was assigned to the COVID task force at the time period? So there, there that would be one ex, one example of it. Another example that we we would we, we've seen too would be um, Marty McCary, who is uh, often uh, writing Wall Street Journal op eds, uh, has been a Fox News uh, sort of regular, 
Uh, but again, another person with no background in public health and has been, been making uh, different sorts of predictions that have not really sort of panned out, taken uh, very contrarian sorts of viewpoints of a very sort of partisan kind of nature to, uh, and, and what, what to is his, public health guide, guidelines. Yeah, sorry. And what is his medical background for those who don't know it? Yeah, you know what? I'm, I, it's escaping me at this time period. But again, it's it's not a background. He's an actual doctor. Or, or, he is an actual MD. Yes, he is. But with, yeah. no, with not a formal background in, say, public health epidemiology uh, or you know, in, in an area that we, we might think to be uh, particularly sort of relevant to the, to the issues at the time period. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, so, so those stand out to me as sort of as, as sort of two examples of that. But we also sort of some sort of um, smaller market, I guess we should say down market type type MDs as well that have been pursuing uh, much more of sort of the partisan news um, spotlight who are MDs pushing discredited sort of science or very questionable and to be very generous um, questionable type type of science uh, or claims related to COVID and COVID response that are in essence, uh, you know, really uh, polluting, you could say, the information sphere uh, that how, how uh, the average person is coming to understand and, and recognize sort of the risks and how to you know, properly take action to protect themselves and protect their community against COVID. One example would be here in California. We had uh, two physicians who work with some uh, emergent care type centers who had a, uh, they, they, suddenly did a press conference that was really just uh, held at their own, one of their own buildings and about their research. So I put my air quotes up, I guess, a little too early when I should have said, you know, research in, in that um, it was really just a a very basic sort of analysis that honestly, somebody like a first year epidemiology student graduate school would have been able to, um, would would have known the problems and the limitations of. But this caught a lot of attention. It was related to, they were trying to downplay sort of the significance of COVID uh, and really what sort of the overall prevalence of it it was. And rather than as we would normally do in a a press conference of any sort of research where we would go into about our findings and really talk about them extensively and keep it about the science and maybe make some, some recommendations sort of based off of that, it was an opportunity to spout a lot of conspiracy theory things around, uh, oh, I have friends in ERs at other places in the country and the people that are coming in, uh, spreading a lot of misinformation around uh, COVID diagnosis and how that would affect the numbers and maybe potentially overblow things. And those two doctors went around and were doing a lot of the conservative talking rounds, you could say, in terms of radio, in terms of television. Fox News booked them, for example, but, you know, then more local market type things as well. So, you know, I bring them up as sort of an example. Uh, they're they're not the only ones. Uh, Simone Gold, uh, who has founded one of the founders of America's Frontline Doctors, has been another individual kind of doing that, but was also caught at the Capitol uh, during the insurrection and is uh, now facing uh, some charges related to that. So, so in essence, we can kind of my my point here is to try to bring up you know that it's not even just around the sphere of medicine per se, but it's moved into politics broadly mm-hmm. in terms of these kinds of uh, social movements that we're seeing as well. Yeah. And there was even another doctor who kind of blended the conspiracy and, you know, unqualified medical ideas. Uh, her name is Stella Emanuel. I don't know if you remember her. She's yeah. uh, claims that the d- disease is caused by sex with demons. And unfortunately, you know, she's still around and some people still believe her uh, that she has good ideas about about responding to COVID. Parchment on the wall says uh, medical doctor. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, And I think, you know, the the common denominator between all these groups that we're talking about here today is that, you know, we can see that just because you have some knowledge or an ability to to or some familiarity with 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 a relevant subject matter, it doesn't mean that you know the full background of it. And, you know, in the the case of somebody who's a surgeon or a general practitioner doctor, um, you really don't know what you're talking about. Um, But, but there's a, there are so many people out there that are taking these people seriously. I mean, you've got this other guy named Brett Weinstein, who is a evolutionary biologist and he's, you know, telling his his viewers on YouTube and YouTube hasn't taken is not taking these videos down. He's in telling them in this house, my wife and I, we don't we don't we're not pursuing vaccines because we believe in ivermectin. You know, and ivermectin is just the latest, you know, fantasy miracle. That's right. Yeah, it's hydroxychloroquine 2.0. And you know, and and they and they 
and their audience doesn't know and, and they're not telling their audience that they're not qualified to talk about this stuff. I mean, do you think it's a problem that you have these these doctors out there? I mean, is there any are medical associations or state medical boards? Are they is there has there been a, something that people have talked about taking action against such unqualified advice? Yeah, there's uh well there's sort of been a bit of movement afoot at least one of the state medical boards I'm I'm forgetting uh, which one I, I want to say Florida but I might be wrong on that you know really now trying to take a position about how spreading me- medical misinformation is really uh, you know against best practices uh, you know and and, want, you know, and and seems to be taking a more vested interest in keeping you know basically keeping tabs on uh, on, on on people that it's uh, that that it's uh, licensing and and uh, and and, and, and the way the practices are working, I, the those doctors that I talked about earlier, uh, in terms of their their study, and uh, that was immediately rebuked by by a professional. By they, they're both emergency uh, physicians, but one of the national organizations for emergency medicine made a sta- came out immediately with a statement that uh, said, you know, that, that to discredit their their findings, you know, and spoke out against them. So mm-hmm. there there is some activity afoot. Now, of course, you know, I'm, I I don't want to conflate professional associations with medical boards. You know, those those are two two separate things. But I, I think those are two important avenues through which there needs to be regulation on this. Uh, that it is really uh, it's it's a, it's a complete violation of and it went away the Hippocratic oath to, to be to be engaging in the activities that people are doing. Although it does get very tricky in terms of, you know, sort of amassing enough of the evidence and making it, you know, at what point does someone cross the line? And, uh, and so it's, it sounds like so many things. It sounds like a you know, great idea in, in theory, but putting it into practice uh, becomes a lot more tricky. Um, it's not to say it can't be done. Uh, but uh, I really think we—I I think there needs to be more action with it. Uh, we need to have, be having more more serious discussions around it in, in, within professional communities and medical boards and, and, and the like, uh, I, because it's clear that the just the the public reputation smear smears and, and, or even just you know sort of a stigma by by your own colleagues is is not enough to stop these people. Yeah, moving along in our framework here. So we've got business types. Talk about that. What what does that mean in terms of public health with regard to COVID nineteen? Well, business types could encompass a lot of a lot of different angles with that. Uh, you know, you could think about just the um, uh, people that have been pushing uh, for a long time, uh, you know, putting an emphasis on. Or, or I should say, making this into sort of a false dichotomy between uh, COVID responses, either public health or it's the economy, and it's one, it's one or the other. When we we know that's not the case, and that the two are very much complementary. So we, you know, we've certainly seen uh, you know sort of emphases on on that, uh, you know, on on definitely on opening up, and so as a result, a lot of confirmation bias, or at least amping of contrary type views as a way to try to support uh, their point that either that COVID maybe is no big deal, that it is, uh, you know, the risk is sort of minimal and that things are overblown and that, you know, really lives are being, uh, there's just too many unintended consequences and, uh, and collateral damage to people's livelihoods and, and, and businesses as a result of this. Uh, and so we, we can see, we, we might, we can see that within um, sort of professional um, influence upon Local officials, we've been seeing this certainly within uh, within Southern California, within Orange County and, and other places. So we see like, um, well, one of the most prominent, actually, probably two weeks ago, sort of as an example of this uh, would be um, a Italian restaurant owner uh, by the name of uh, Tony uh, Roman, who runs a, uh, a restaurant in Orange County where he had a sign up that was basically said he would wanted to serve the unvaccinated or he wanted to give preference to uh, th- those patrons. However, however, you would prove that, you know, obviously was, but this was like the latest of, of many sorts of public stunts that he's pulled uh, in terms of defiance of public health orders. And with that has courted a lot of media attention. It's probably drummed up a lot of business for him in terms of, uh, you know, getting appealing to a particular sort of base crowd. Along with that, uh, had a very um, embarrassing sort of national cable news interview with Chris Cuomo about a week or two ago, uh, along with this, and has used this as a opportunity, along with lots of, he's not the only one, but there's lots of people, particularly we've seen it here in Southern California, what I like to call protest entrepreneurs. So they're people who have, in response to COVID and sort of their outrage about government, the government response to it, 
uh, have really sought out uh, some sort of attention. Uh, but, you know, it could be profit driven. It could be status or influence oriented. In, in essence, really to get attention about counter issues. And so I've really made, really created a new sort of enterprise related to everything that's anti-COVID. And so it might have, it generally, it does get wrapped up or, or sort of sold in terms of some sort of um, political statement with, with a lot of phony science sometimes to back it up. But then, you know, you go to a lot of these websites and there's donate buttons and there's merchandise to be sold. And with that, lots of well, I mean, the, the way social media and other opportunities, YouTube and, you know, and other things afford us, there's so many different ways now to get fan followings and get attention for yourself. And so within that type of circle, these individuals have really sort of found fame uh, in, in many respects. And so yeah, Roman would, is, is certainly one notable example of that, um, but there's other ones as well. Some who have originally maybe had a background in uh, maybe the anti-vaccine movement, uh, but mm-hmm. others who I, I've never heard of before until until COVID popped up. To see them appear at protests, uh, these you know, the anti-lockdown protests, and and their issues span beyond again just sort of public health to much more of a broader anti-government sort of uh, worldview or, or platform. And in that respect, it gets them lots of uh, of attention and allies, you could say, with people in those other sorts of spheres, people who might not have had any interest whatsoever, maybe in vaccines, or, uh, you know, they might be fully vaccinated for all we know, or would have necessarily maybe, uh, you know, have supported these people in the past in terms of any sort of maybe alternative science, I guess you could say, or bunk science. Uh, but now, uh, you know, really, this has become sort of a, a coalition of kind of common bedfellows in that way. So there is a, you know, a sort of a profit opportunity there, whether it's monetary or or through some other sorts of, of capital, you know, influence, uh, attention, uh, likes, even even in that respect, uh, and just really yeah. a microphone. Yeah, and I think that dovetails also with the the last type here, which is the wannabe medical pundits. And I think that kind of overlays all these other classes, but they're also their own group as well. And just recently today, as a matter of fact, one of the best known COVID uh, wannabe pundits, uh, Nate Silver of 538, got in tr- himself in trouble. I'm going to put up the uh, tweet exchange on the screen here. So uh, there, there, there's a biologist named Carl Bergstrom. He's, uh, you know, written a lot about the epidemic and virology. And uh, so he, he, he was posting a basic reminder to people that immunity is a function of both having had COVID and also being vaccinated. And we can know who would be immune from, you know, roughly immune uh, from dying by their vaccination rate. But people who are not vaccinated, well, we don't know what how effective immunity they would have. And then Nate Silver, who uh, is known more for his sports analysis and his politics analysis, uh, decided to claim that Bergstrom had stolen this idea from him. And he said, well, it's no problem because I'm glad it's getting more visibility, but you're kind of stealing this take from me, which is an interesting use of the word take there, I think. Uh, And then um, Bergstrom replies back, well, first of all, this is common knowledge in epidemiology, not some brilliant discovery on your part. And then second, I even referenced my source who had written it before you did yourself, and I don't even follow you. Um, So that was really quite a slap down, but it, it's one that a lot of people have have been wanting to see coming because Silver is one of this new class of people who are much less relevant in non-election times, and you know, interest in sports has declined quite a bit as well. So, so traffic to his sites, you know, just down, and so now he's decided to get involved in COVID analyzing, and but he's not the only one. Talk, talk a little bit about this idea of you know, media influencers chasing likes here, if you could. Yeah. So there's a, there's a really a broad spectrum of this. I've, I've, re- I've written a little bit about this and been, been thinking a lot about it. And um, I think COVID has really, I think, brought this to the fore uh, in terms of uh, its contributions to misinformation and going just confusion. I would say, and that, you know, for, uh, you could think on one end of the spectrum, you have these sort of non-experts like, uh, like Silver, like uh, Matthew Iglesias would be another example, you know, the blogger uh, types um, are 
for better or for worse, you could say in the 21st century, at least in 2021, are sort of our equivalent of sort of a public intellectual. But in, in essence, you know, again, you know, they make their business off of social commentary and getting discussions sort of going. But then you, as you move along the spectrum, you know, there are people who are relatively more sort of qualified to talk about particular topics. And in some cases just may have, may not be fully there or in, and consistently have bad takes or incomplete sorts of takes that, but have a, maybe a little bit more legitimacy because they might have a certain degree. Eric Feigelding, for example, comes comes to mind for this, a very prominent uh, during COVID influencer who has a, uh, who has a PhD, but in, uh, in epidemiology, I believe it's nutritional epidemiology, though, but it has uh, tweeted extensively and has even been sought for his supposed expertise uh, out by, um, I believe it was New Jersey, in, in terms of COVID response. Uh, and so it's really kind of parlayed this into kind of an influencer career. But then you move along, you have other individuals like Emily Oster has, has come up, uh, you know, has, has had a lot of, uh, has received lots of criticism over uh, some of her her takes on, on uh, regards to schooling. Uh, she's an economist by training, you know, has some qualifications for the things that she studies, uh, but certainly, you know, is, is certainly an influencer and has, there's been a bit of debate about some of her positions. Uh, Zeynep uh, Tefekci, if I'm saying her name correctly, is a, um, I believe she's an American studies or communications scholar. She uh, describes herself as a sociologist with no background whatsoever in public health, but has written extensively through already having a platform through the New York Times and the Atlantic uh, for things that uh, I know my my bench scientist network uh, really gets their nose out of at a joint reading reading her work. Uh, it's really not not fully informed. Uh, but then you can move even further along, you know, and then you have people who are you could say maybe are MD contrarians, you know, always trying to provide a hot take to get attention on, on a lot of, uh, on a lot of issues, for example, uh, but may not, may not have any sort of public health background. One person who definitely comes to mind uh, on that, who, who's received that, that criticism is uh, Vinay Prasad, who uh, another person who has a big following, uh, had a big following probably before COVID. It's very frequently uh, offered uh, particular types of takes that the uh, people within the public health community have, have taken issue with. And then you even have individuals, you know, MDs with infectious disease backgrounds. Uh, Monica Gandhi is, an, is another prominent example of that. You could say sort of maybe on more, more, uh, on the, uh, more fully to the other end of the spectrum, who offers, you know, there's a mix there. Uh, you know, there are certain things you know, I, I would not disagree with her, but there are other times I've taken issue and others have taken with you for how certain sorts of statistics are reported or, or used to sort of push a particular opinion and uh, or has has had particular takes on different emerging, sorry, you could say chapters of the pandemic or, or different sorts of issues that have not necessarily panned out or have been maybe factually sort of wrong and been challenged by virologists and, and others. Uh, and so really, so where I'm going with this is, so you have this very interesting, it's not even sort of, you could say falls on like one axis. It's sort of this multi-axis sort of classification of influencers that are out there. With the social media being what it is, and, and I guess you could say our mediascape being what it is in 2021, there's lots of opportunities for influence and to be heard. Uh, and while there's lots of people out there, like Carl Bergstrom is, I think, a fantastic example of this. Peter Hotez would be another good one of people you could think of as influencers, but are really you know, are people who are really just concerned about doing science communication. Um, they're not in it for any sort of real, to make a brand of themselves or anything like that. They just want to do the good thing. I, I try to do the same thing as a professor. It's part of my job, although I don't have nearly the following of any of these people and, and communicate to the public and, you know, kind of do good in terms of public, uh, public engagement. So, so you've got, you've got, the, you could say, you know, that, that group too are influencers, but, but, but for good, you know, in many respects, not, not to mm-hmm. say that there isn't good that comes out of some of those other people, but to the extent yeah. to which our mediascape really is not really sort of regulated and presents this opportunity for audiences, there becomes this, and I think very similar to a Dr. Oz or these other doctors even that we've, we've talked about uh, before, uh, or even the protest entrepreneurs, an opportunity to gain influence that can, I think at times be a bit tempting. That does become a temptation in a way. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that's a very generous one, I think, to ascribe to, uh, ascribe to uh, people like Silver uh, or, or, or some of the bloggers. Yeah. Well, and the thing that that they may not realize, so, you know, they're not certainly not nearly as mis, you know, misinformative or or disinformative as, let's say, Alex Jones or, uh, you know, J- Joe Rogan even. Um, but what they're doing is that by putting ideas out there about public health, 
that they don't understand and which are often proved in, to be incorrect, what they're doing is is increasing skepticism of actual public officials who have been, you know, who have dedicated years of their lives to this subject matter. And, you know, it. so even if like, let's say they never say something like don't get vaccinated, don't wear a mask, like even if they don't say that, what they're doing is undermining public confidence in about in a subject that matters a lot. Yes. And, and, and that? that's my point. Yeah. And so uh, it, this may sound just like, you know, I'm just naming names and, you know, and just kind of, you know, trash talking and everything else. My, my point here is, and I'm coming at this as, for, as, a, as a, from a social science sort of standpoint with it is if you, you can classify, you know, sort of these into kind of these, you could think of almost sort of ideal types of, of influencers, put them into particular categories. And I have noticed too, that there's really are very, there, there are tactics uh, that are either somewhat unique, or you could say, you know, kind of span those different sorts of categories in terms of how they communicate their messages. Uh, so in ca- certain cases, there are people could be very well-intended, but, uh, you know, I named name some MDs, for for example, uh, you know, in, in that last group, or, you know, or, and, and some others as well, but um, who, in terms of trying to court an audience and using social media, it just creates more confusion, and it really just kind of pollutes the, the information sphere that's already, at this point, been very clogged with disinformation. So you know, all, all these people that I've, I've kind of named at this point are individuals who you could say are, are, are you know, are very pro-science, uh, you know, and want to, and, and in that case are not coming from this as sort of pushing, uh, you know, any sort of bunk, bunk kinds of things across that spectrum. Uh, but they are by these kinds of just asking questions, kinds of approaches, or trying to paint themselves as sort of the outside loner viewpoint the public really believes in that kind of idea of, oh, science, it feeds into these ideas that like science is not listening to certain people who might have really good ideas. And, uh, you know, to, to a lay audience, they might sound like they've got, that is the answer. That works great in Hollywood. There's, you know, the, the lone genius against the, the establishment. and they, That's not how the science community works. And, you know, and there are lots of, you know, for, there's, it's sort of a weird paradox. I like to think about this. For as much as many Americans who want to discount a lot of the expertise like to think about our country as this sort of, you know, as you know, that, that America is this great place, you know, sort of American exceptionalism, in a way, they're kind of discounting the fact that the United States does have a, a tremendous critical mass of expertise, of which has been marshaled in, a, in unprecedented ways towards trying to understand a virus that we have not, we, we knew very little to nothing about a year ago. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, with that, of course, there's going to be constant updates uh, because the science is coming out in, you know, in, in, in quick droves, uh, you know, good science, I should emphasize with that. Uh, but just the, the speed of it has increased and science doing what it does is updating its uh, prior assumptions, its prior theories and, and conclusions about things and modifying them in, in light of new good evidence. And of course, then from there come guideline changes that, OK, you know, uh, Organizations like the CDC and other ones are not going to be, um, you know, they're, they're not going to hit every ball out of the park. Uh, you know, and I think I'm being kind of kind of kind on on some of the on, on some of their their guidelines, uh, which they've received some some criticism on. Uh, but it is a very tough game that they're playing in terms of trying to constantly stay on top of the evidence, do the best thing, and think about guidelines that could apply to everybody and not just specific uh, sorts of individuals. And so you always kind of have to take a more conservative uh, type of approach uh, to, to a lot of things. Now, I mean, you know, of course, we can debate the mass guidelines uh, that they previously had and have now been revised and, and other sorts of, of, of steps that they've taken. Uh, but in general, that's, the, that's, that's essentially what they have to deal with. That's their stage. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, this week, you know, the uh, I think it was NIH, um, somebody over there, I think it was NIH, had recommended that parents wear masks around their children, vaccinated parents wear masks around their children at home. And, you know, he caught a, a lot of flack from that. People were, were like, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. And, you know, for the thing is, though, like for some people, that actually is a sensible recommendation, but it's only, you know, it's it's for people... It's not for everybody. It's not something that most people need to be doing. And he had to retract that soon after. And but I, you know, and I think you know, to to that point though, you know, there have been some some mistakes made 
by the government, um, lack of transparency or or in some cases, even deception, like with masks in the beginning, like these, these were credibility damaging as well. And I haven't really seen them apologize for that. Have you? Not much. No, it's sort of moving on or, you know, kind of, yeah, next, next step. Where, where are we? Um, and yeah. there's some evidence to, to make the argument that, um, you know, admitting mistakes can be, be good for public credibility. In, in terms of maintaining trust. Yeah, and I think like with regard to, so, you know, like with regard to the early statements about masking uh, that were made, you know, that like even now, I feel like the average person doesn't know that masks are not to protect yourself uh, unless you've got an N95, that the other masks are not going to protect you. Uh, they're for protecting the public. I don't think that that's, you know, and to some degree, I feel like that is the fault of the media also, uh, because a lot of journalists, editors in particular, they they have a, a novelty bias. That is to say that they don't want to talk about a topic that they've already talked about, because in their mind, they think that somehow... You know, their audience happened to spot some random segment that they did four months ago or some article that they ran, you know, six months ago that their audience somehow remembers that to this day and and, and references it. Like, no, they don't remember that they, they, they if they even saw it at all. And so there's this reluctance, I think among a lot of media, national media institutions to just rem- to remind people of, of basic things that are relevant to this discussion, you know, just in the exact same way that Carl Bergstrom was doing. And, you know, and other science communicate like, and it's fa- that burden is having to fall to, you know, uh, individual science communicators like yourself. But the media generally isn't as interested in trying to do this stuff, would you say? No. Yeah. I mean, gosh, we could, we could talk for another three hours about, uh, about the media and, and, and what, what they've done wrong in terms of, in terms of communicating. I think a lot of the points though, that you just raised will also get back to this idea of, of, of our culture of individualism. And so we tend come to think of med of anything that's sort of health related or medical as sort of, you know, any sort of therapeutic or aid or anything like that as being only something for you. Uh, you know, take an aspirin or, you know, take uh, take your blood pressure medication. Uh, and so a mask sort of in that same way, whereas, you know, again, we um, well, and then even with the stories tend to have a very personal, this is how it's going to affect you uh, sort of element to it, which which I think long preceded COVID. I think we do have, there's a tendency to, uh, well, I, you know, I say this with my background in sociology too, there tends to be a very over psychology, psychologizing, I guess you could say, of news stories, that everything is sort of based on sort of these personal choices and interests when really there's sort of broader collective and community uh, and, and structural types of explanations and, and issues that people have to have to be made aware of. Uh, in this case, impact upon other people. What you will do can hurt people. And you know, I, I think we and, and you, you see that in a lot, too, with the types of experts that they bring on to talk about uh, issues. I see this on cable news all the time. It's no disrespect to I mean, some of them are practicing physicians and they're seeing COVID cases in the ER. Uh, you know, my hat's off to their work. Uh, you know, gosh, I mean, the the, the, uh, the the dedication to that, you know, is, is very commendable. But then they ask then they're there to ask answer questions related to vaccine hesitancy or uh, pandemic response and other sorts of broader public health issues of which they really don't have a background. And so much, much discussion in the discourse gets centered around, um, again, these very individualistic doctor-patient relation type stories and anecdotes. Now, to be fair, those do resonate very well with audiences versus, um, you know, uh, getting, you know, getting somebody like me that comes on and I'm going to cite statistics and I'm going to go, you know, and show you, you know, maybe a graph or something like that. But at the same time, uh, you know, really this is a collective, this is a collective crisis that has affected our nation. We could have been phrasing that in very community oriented type ways in terms of what we have to do to help others, to uh, help our neighbors or our, our communities, our loved ones, our friends and uh, about masks and what our duty is as Americans to kind of deal with this in a crisis. And I think that would have appealed very well, I think, to a lot of subsections of America that really are um, where we're seeing a lot of hesitance and sort of government, uh, you know, anti-government kind of reaction to things like vaccines and, and, and 
and stuff that that uh, beforehand the you know, sort of non pharmaceutical intervention type things like distancing and, and the like. But we don't do that. We think about the you know again it's uh, you know even even masking studies are you know, often people we have to emphasize you know like this doesn't work like a typical clinical trial of you know where you just kind of have like a you get people taking a placebo and you get people taking a drug and let's see let's see what works out that we always have to be thinking about public health thinks about these things as sort of overall benefit and population benefit so that's that's uh, right, to me been one of the most one of the more unfortunate yeah. messaging misses i guess you could say in terms of what we what we've seen in the media yeah i th- i think the underlying issue with all this stuff is that uh, there has been I, I don't think there has been enough education both at at the k twelve level all the way up to to the medical school level about getting people to understand that you know just because you know about something doesn't mean you understand it. Um, just because you can read a, some spreadsheet tables doesn't mean you should talk about that and just because abstract. <laughs> Would be yeah, a, that's a right. Or you, or you read an article one time and, and therefore you know about it. Well, you know, or you've seen ivermectin work on your horse or your dog um, and therefore it's going to work on you. Um, that's not how knowledge is and that's not what the scientific method is. But it looks like, you know, a lot of people simply have no idea about what the scientific method is and, and, and that change within science is like that's how it works. Like changing your mind continually is the scientific method. Do, do people understand that at all, do you think? Some people do, but not most, would you say? I think there's a significant portion of the population that doesn't understand that. I think they see this constant updating of science. Again, this, you know, this, is, this is science at warp speed in, in essence relative to so many other, other scientific topics. Uh, so it really has been rather amazing too. Seeing this constant updating and refinement of ideas, and I think they take that very much as, well, science doesn't know what it's doing. Uh, uh, it's a public that is used to, in science education, you know, things like gravity. It's a, it's a subtle thing. Uh, you know, or, or other maybe some, some other laws of the universe. Uh, and not the idea that really the major, vast majority of science, and it's the reason why there still is science and uh-huh. it's just not a done deal anymore, is because there's so many questions and things that we still we don't understand and we're keeping, we, we continue to pursue that. Also, at the same time, I think with related to health, I mean, we, we put kind of our faith to go to a doctor, something is bothering us, and the doctor will know what exactly that it is, and that's it. And so, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, then there's the distrust issues of physicians and, and, and the like, but, but, but generally speaking, I mean, I think our culture has been kind of socialized into that's the answer and here's where you do it. And here, here's where we go from there uh, uh, issues in, in the vast majority of cases. And mm-hmm. so now to see that also is, uh, you know, is, is disconcerting to people. Hmm, wow. Doctors kind of saying, you know, they kind of may, might not even be explicitly saying they don't know. Uh, in my career, I've run across a lot of MDs that seem to have an inability to say, I don't know on something. Uh, and I think that is part of the culture of medicine uh, in many respects. I think a lot of MDs are socialized in, into that kind of uh, thinking in terms of being the expert and being knowledgeable about that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, that's, it's not to paint the entire field with, with, one, with one, one broad brush. But I, but I think that's, that is certainly a field of expertise of which we've come to expect a definitive kind of answer on. And so to hear people that might, you know, might be unclear about something or might be now changing their opinion. Uh, you know, if you went to the doctor for that about, you know, a, a common cold or, a, you know, or I don't know, some, you know, your, your elbow that's bothering you, yeah, you, you'd probably too, you know, start to wonder about the credibility of them and, uh, and, and have some sorts of doubts about it. And so that, that also has, that, that hasn't helped things as well. well overall, what we, what we've had so much, you know, to some degree, people have, have talked about this idea of a, an authority crisis in our culture. But in a lot of ways, I think it's better to call it an, it's an epistemic problem. Uh, that is the idea of, of knowledge. How does knowledge even work? How is it acquired? Yeah. How do you, you know, how, is it okay not to know something? And the answer is, it is okay not to know something. And, you know, continually modifying how you think, look at the world yourself. Like that's how you have a better life. That's how you find better careers for yourself. That's how you find better relationships, you know, better friends and maintain the ones you have. That's what we need. Uh, but, you know, a lot of a lot of our cultural institutions, you know, like in more, let's say, more fundamentalist religion, 
you know, tells people that, uh, you know, these things are, are absolute truths and they exist forever and they apply all the time. And, you know, but even, even, the, but that, but then people who, who buy into that worldview, even they don't, they don't believe it in every instance themselves. So like, for instance, the Bible says that, you know, women should not speak in church. Well, I can bet you that most churches out there, except for maybe the most strict fundamentalist churches, do allow women to speak sometimes in church, you know, in appropriate or specific ways, depending on the church, but, uh, or whatever, you know, whatever their justification is. So they don't even practice that idea in their own life about a framework that's meaningful to them. But it's hard for them to understand that that idea of nuance is very important to science um, and how it works. Most certainly. Yeah. The uh, being raised Catholic, I can say that, you know, there's always Catholics seem to be very good at uh, sort of justifying uh, how they can get around certain things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and, and, and it, and it is tough. Uh, and, and I think this gets at really, um, you know, I mean, there's so many, ba- you know, re- it's, it, it bridges religion in a way. I mean, I think it really just fits into much more about a, a sort of confirmation bias that we kind of really have hardwired into our brains where we really do want to seek out things that really kind of support our worldview, getting that cognitive dissonance or that discomfort from coming, uh, um, from coming face to face with information that just doesn't support your worldview, even pr- uh, potentially very conclusive evidence with it, you know, is not, um, is, you know, can be very unsettling to people. But yet at the same time, you know, it's, it's funny to think, you know, there, there are certain, uh, there's, there's certain experts that people, well, we can certainly think that there's experts that people challenge. I mean, I get it thrown at me an awful lot. They, you know, I'm a professor and I must have some sort of liberal bias or there's, you know, the, some other sorts of ways to try to discredit some objective finding or whatever it is that I have. But, you know, there's lots of other experts that don't get discredited or, you know, we don't really sort of challenge their expertise on. And so there is an interesting double standard with this. I believe it was Tom Nichols who wrote the book, The Death of Expertise, who once used an example of, you know, what you, you could get online. Yeah, he's a professor, too. And he says, I get challenged all the time on things related to politics. He says, but I'll bet those same people don't hop on board an airplane and start challenging the pilot while they're you know there or, you know, or we'll go to an accountant or, you know, or we show up to court. We want a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And so there are there are these inter you know I mean the, the world's full of of these sorts of double standards in terms of in terms of our viewpoints, but for science you know um, some of this and the, the very the very technical sorts of elements of it it's also been sort of raised that this is you know can sometimes be viewed as maybe being elitist and so there's sort of maybe a little bit of a reaction against that I think there could be could be something to that too, but at the same time you know I mean I'm I'm very impressed with. For all the bad stuff, you know, we kind of see online with misinformation and, and uh, or unintended maybe information, you know, depending on the role of the influencers, however you want to think about their role in this. There's an awful lot of uh, there's an awful lot of, of researchers and academics and others who are tr- out there trying to do good in terms of communicating things to the public in ways that we've not seen before and really addressing that uh, the old you know, slur that, that the, that the Academy was a really an ivory tower and that we were out of touch and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that we really don't engage with people anymore. And so I, you know, in a way I've, I've seen that as, I mean, if there's anything positive, you can kind of pull out of a, out of a pandemic. I, I so maybe this is just a bad way to sort of frame it. We, we, we do have that. And that has been a nice thing to, thing to see. Uh, and I've, I've seen it for a few years now, uh, in, in the uh, vaccine space as well, people trying to dis- debunk information. It's unfortunate that it's yeah. needed, but uh, but it, but it's there, and I think some of the ha- of the disinformation has arisen out of a, a hole that has been uh, that's uh, or a gap that's that's not been filled by I think people experts kind of doing more uh, sort of public communication sort of things. I mean, we get we get a Neil deGrasse Tyson, but uh, you know, but we don't, we don't get too many sort of public scientists. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. We definitely need more of that. And, you know, and it is, I think it's always great to see, you know, individual Twitter users or YouTube commenters, you know, calling misinformation out, uh, medical misinformation out when they see it and, and, and giving specific citations for what they mean. And actually, so we had a question uh, before we started. Uh, one of our uh, viewers had, had asked, you know, what are some great places where I can go to 
to find you know good resources to debunk these types of arguments can you uh, address that yeah so the question was specific to if i recall correctly around around vaccine misinformation just as a as, as just an introduction and sort of a bridge from what i was just talking about too it's been fascinating i i, I gave credit here to to like academics and researchers but um so much of the disinf of, of the of the information or disinformation uh, debunking uh, that, that, you, that you see online is very grassroots. And so there are a lot of, of individuals who are just might have a science background, might not, but try to do, do good with this and sort of either post or try to challenge misinformation mm-hmm. when it's put up there. And so, yeah, so here's, so there's a couple different examples. So one of them would be um, a, one great resource is called vaxipedia.org, B-A-X-O- pedia.org, uh, which is run by, uh, by a physician. And two other ones, skepticalraptor.com, uh, which is a site and sort of a blog uh, that's run, if I, if I recall correctly, uh, the person uh, was a, a, phar- a pharmaceutical scientist uh, and uh, posts uh, really good information, helpful information on lots of different elements related to vaccine misinformation, including legal aspects of it. Uh, and some of the laws and uh, and policies and regulations around it uh, that can be very helpful. And uh, one of one of my colleagues, who's a legal scholar, posts work on there a lot. Uh, Dory uh, Rubenstein Reese at UC Hastings, it's very useful. And then la- uh, another one that comes. I mean, there's, there are several of these, uh, but these are just a couple uh, that, that that come to mind. Another one um, might seem a little bit of an unusual name uh, is by an individual who's, a, who's an MD, emergency uh, uh, medicine physician, Doc Bastard. B a s t a r a r d, you know, as the as the uh, as the name goes, <laughs> .net, which has this really great, uh, also um, like Vaxipedia, sort of encyclopedia, the way it's kind of indexed and archived around particular uh, disinformation streams. Uh, and I would say a lot of these also play over to other elements that we've kind of seen with COVID, so even though they might be more directly sort of focused on vaccinations, we can kind of, because of how the vaccine, anti-vaccine movement is so moved into these, this COVID and anti-public health space, uh, a lot of these issues, um, uh, you know, kind of cover, cover that element, uh, this kind of new evolution, you could say, to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. One that I would recommend also to people, uh, there's one called Science-Based Medicine, uh, which does a lot of nice debunking uh, on vaccine and other COVID disinformation out there. Um, yeah, that's much yeah. more of a uh, um, David Gorski uh, is a is a great resource on on, on this. It's been doing this for years, uh, and that would be um, I was thinking that's that's less for sort of specific information. That's much more for um, he'll have some. I shouldn't say it's less for specific. It is very it's very specific, but it's much more sort of blog oriented versus if you have a specific uh, issue or question related to ingredients and vaccines or things like that, then maybe a Vaxipedia or or these other sites might be better. But um, Gorski does these uh, fantastic diagnoses of uh, of particular claims and and, uh, schemes, even in certain cases, and individuals who are very prominent online who are spreading disinformation. So uh, glad glad you raised it. So this has been a great conversation, Rich, and I appreciate you joining me. So I'm going to put on the screen your uh, Twitter spot, just so the audience can see it. But for those who are listening, it's uh, R-M-C-A-R and then piano, like the instrument. So that's that's your uh, Twitter. Are you putting your work, publishing it elsewhere, or where, or where else can people find you? Well, I have a link there to my to my own website, uh, and so uh, there, that's where I try to keep things updated with uh, any sort of public work that I might be doing. Or, uh, but generally, if you follow me on my Twitter site, uh, you'll 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 get most of the stuff that I'm up to, as well as sort of my uh, uh, my comments and and thoughts on latest issues that might be coming up, or any sort of disinformation, or even even misleading sorts of reporting or, or things that could be could lead to confusion, I should say. Not not intentionally misleading, but things that might be sort of confusing. I try to clarify those things too uh, to the public related to policy issues, related to general social science and uh, and other issues related to COVID as well as other other public health matters. Okay, cool. All right. Well thanks for joining us today. Well thanks uh, so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah.
So just a little bit of housekeeping for everybody. I wanted to uh, remind everybody that Theory of Change is also on Twitter. So the website is theoryofchange.show and the website, uh, the Twitter handle is at Theory Change. And Theory of Change is part of a larger media network called Flux. So I encourage you to check that out. Um, the website address of that is flux.community. And we're trying to do something very different to provide in-depth coverage to larger matters of politics, of religion, and of, of public health and science. So I, it's, a, it's a website that is open to contributions, writing contributions. If you have a podcast you want to tell us about, feel free to jump on there and, and let us know what you're doing. And we also have a, a Patreon if you want to support our work. It's patreon.com slash discoverflux. So thank you for joining me, everybody, and I'll see you next time.